Hello, all you crusading blue stockings and lovelorn bodyguards, and welcome to episode 13 of A Bookish Affair, where we two Shannons will be your fellow travelers through the world of happily ever after. I'm Shandy, she is Shannon, and we love romance. We are the co-founders of the Lake Oswego Public Library's first genre book club, A Bookish Affair. We read and discuss diverse and inclusive love stories every second Sunday of the month at the library when it's open and on WebEx for the foreseeable future. If you are interested in joining a virtual discussion group on WebEx, um, have feedback for us or suggestions for the club or podcast or just want to say hi, please email us at sadel at lakeoswego.city or sdickinson at lakeoswego.city. Uh, for more information about the book club, uh, that's available on LOPL.org. Just go to Books and More on the main page, then scroll down to Discussion Groups. You can find all of these links on the show in the show notes as well. We'd like to begin by acknowledging the ancestral, traditional, and unceded territory of the Kalapuya, Cowlitz, and Clackamas peoples on which we live, work, and record this podcast. Well, hello, friends. I am back in Oregon. So hello from this side of the border. Lovely, lovely to be back here, even though the weather is, you know, pretty much exactly the same as it is in California right now. <laughs> we had an epic trip back. We stopped off in San Francisco for a visit with Evie, which included uh, episode two of Crash Landing on You. So now we're really hooked. Uh, we had an epic walk through Golden Gate Park. And I will say that mask compliance in San Francisco is extremely high and uh, some truly glorious homemade eggs Benedict. So it was, that was a lovely stop. And then we also stopped off in Medford uh, for one of my dad's famous margaritas. And as always, that was a delight. And I also tried out the new zip line in their backyard and lived to tell the, t tell the tale with only mild humiliation. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> Welcome home, Shandy. And um, congratulations regarding the zip line. That is something I've never thought about doing in my one precious life. Not even crash landing on you can get me excited about paragliding. Um, perhaps I don't know how to have reckless fun, but what else? What I'm trying to say is good on you for trying it, for doing it. You're brave and you're powerful. That was a very nice Mary Oliver reference, by the way. Uh, points to you for that. Um, <laughs> I was really just trying to get Claire to try the zip line, but I have to say I did enjoy myself, even though I am definitely approaching the weight limit of that particular backyard zip line, let's put it that way. Anyway, so, okay, so before we get to the meat of the episode, um, I forgot to tell you all one very important detail about last week's, or about our about our trip uh, to the Ripped Bodice um, on last week's episode. Uh, they were playing the chicks formerly Dixie Chicks, um, the Chicks backlist. And it had been so long since I had heard any of those songs. I just felt like I was, I had stepped into a time machine and we were all, you know, singing along through our masks. And it was just, it was like the perfect soundtrack to our visit. Um, so I had to say that because I, I really, uh, when I was sort of painting my my word picture of the Ripped Bodice, that's a, that's a very important detail that I left out. In... Yeah. Further Ripped Bodice news, uh, I also tuned in for their Thursday evening historical happy hour, which is hosted by um, by one of the co-owners, B. Coke, um, on Instagram Live uh, the other night, and it was a really great time. It's, I, I highly recommend that. This week, she's talking to Sherry Thomas, who writes historical romances, and she also writes the Lady Sherlock series of historical mysteries. I'm not sure how much of a romantic element they have, but there must be something. Um, anyway, those books are really fun, and they would be great for our crossovers episode now that I'm thinking about that. Um, anyway, Historical Happy Hour is at 5 p.m. on Thursdays, and all you have to do is go to the Ripped Bodice's Instagram. I am done talking about the Ripped Bodice now, until next week when I remember something else. Um, I just want to remind you that this is a safe space. <laughs> you can talk about the Ripped Bodice here. And, you know, we all want to go, and you're describing a sacred space. So please don't censor yourself. Tell us about Lee, Leah and B and this wonderful place that is a bookstore dedicated to romance novels. I mean, if you feel compelled, we can talk about something else too, but I just want to remind you, safe space. <laughs> 
Well, okay. I mean, now that you mention it, um, yesterday was the release date of B. Coke's own book. Uh, it's called Mad and Bad, Real Heroines of the Regency. And I cannot wait for my pre-order to arrive. I'm so excited. Um, the title, of course, is a nod to Lady Caroline Lamb's famous statement about Lord Byron, that he was mad, bad, and dangerous to know. And I kind of love hearing that applied to, you know, some cool ladies of the Regency, most, if not all of whom were... Um, Presumably significantly better people than Byron because he was kind of a terrible person. So <laughs> anyway, super excited about that. Uh, Leah Koch made the cutest Instagram post ever about how basically the highlight of her life as a bookseller is selling her own sister's book. Mm -hmm. um, so that was very, that was very hard eyes. But okay. All right. We do have stuff to talk about that is not ripped bodice or Koch sisters related. So let's, uh, let's get to it. Um, and this is, you know, we were, we were actually going to talk about betas this week. And I think that we will do that sometime in the next couple of weeks, because that is a conversation that I really want to have, um, especially following so closely on the, um, on all of our alpha conversations. What about betas? Yeah. But something happened over the weekend and I just kind of went down a Twitter rabbit hole and, um, it brought up so many interesting issues. So I kind of wanted to talk about it today. So, um, Every Monday, I read the Book Riot Romance newsletter, which is written by Jessica Pride. Uh, it's basically my source for news. Like, if it's not in the Book Riot Romance newsletter, which comes out on Mondays and Thursdays, I it might be several days before I hear about it. So, <laughs> so anyway, um, Monday's, Monday's newsletter, I learned about a huge conversation that happened on Twitter over the weekend. And it really, really makes you think. So... All right, let me set this set the scene here. So in short, a uh, a white woman, a white reviewer wrote a a very thoughtful review of a book called The Duke's Princess Bride by Amelie Howard. You may remember that I um, mentioned that I'm reading the arc. Uh, I think in last week's episode. Um, so in her review, which was too long for Goodreads, so she posted it on Medium, um, she pointed out a number of ways in which the book could be painful to readers, especially readers of South Asian or Indo-Caribbean descent um, due to themes of colonialism, colorism, and racism. Um, the heroine of the book is the biracial daughter of an English noblewoman and an Indian Maharaja. And the hero is an English Duke, a former employee of the East India Company, and um, also a West Indies plantation owner. Mm. So, um, from what I can tell, and because I'm not an expert at Twitter, it can be hard to sort of recreate these things. But from what I can tell, um, a couple of South Asian reviewers brought the review to the attention of Twitter at large because they agreed with the concerns that are raised. And then everything kind of exploded. And this this is where it gets tough to parse because, you know, some of the relevant tweets and threads have actually been deleted. And, you know, you're several days later, a lot of these authors are, have a lot to say. <laughs> Twitter. So like sometimes even just getting back to August 29th is, uh, it, it takes some effort. So in short, some authors and readers took issue with a white reviewer questioning, questioning the decisions of an author of color. It is an own voices book, um, pointing to the, you know, they're, they're pointing to the very real problem of authors of color being held to a higher standard than white authors, um, especially by white reviewers. Meanwhile, Many readers and reviewers, many of them South Asian, felt attacked by those folks. And they felt they felt as though the question of the book itself, this particular review, and the rights of, review, of reviewers in general to express their opinions had sort of been sidelined as this conversation went from, you know, the very specific one review of one book by one author to the widespread problem of white readers and reviewers nitpicking, criticizing and dismissing books by authors of color, which is a very real problem in the romance world. Um, mm -hmm. Some really big names weighed in on both sides. Um, Courtney Milan, Alyssa Cole, Nalini Singh, Katrina Jackson, and Tasha L. Harrison, all of them in support of the reviewers and of, of the idea of speaking up about harmful representation when it appears in any book, no matter its author. Um, so Rebecca Withers Weatherspoon put it well, I think this is a quote, she says, all manner of things can happen in any kind of story. But if you do introduce bigotry, it is your job as a writer to say, inside the narrative, this is wrong, and my main characters know this is wrong. 
So that was, um, you know, many, many people, many, many people said very, very many eloquent things. Um, that was, that was just one of them. Um, Adriana Herrera kind of on the other side, she apologized later for the turn that the conversation took. And she said, this is another quote, I deleted my threads because they detracted from valid criticism of a book with harm, harmful content. I never meant to make reviewers, especially reviewers of color, feel like their voices weren't valued. I apologize for doing that. There's a right place and a right time for a larger conversation about women of color writing historical romance. And this wasn't it. I'm sorry for that too. That's the end, end of the quote there. And I should note that I found that the other day, but I was not able to find that particular tweet on her feed today. Um, so perhaps again, you know, perhaps that's just me not understanding how to use Twitter, but <laughs> something to note there, you know, it, it can be really hard to sort of retrace these, these conversations because sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes things get deleted. Um, the author, Amelie Howard, she waited a couple of days, made a statement apologizing to readers and reviewers of color for their pain and, you know, sort of thanking them for holding her accountable, promising to make revisions and also expressing appreciation for other authors who have reached out to her and offered to help make the book better. Wow, that that is a very layered Twitterverse explosion. Very. So the main criticism of the reviewers was regarding the racist representation and attitudes of this particular novel by a woman of color. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, but then an additional issue came up regarding how writers of color are held to a higher standard of writing than white authors. That's a huge bind. And, and as you said, a very real issue. I imagine both sides had some very strong arguments, but what did it boil down to? I suppose regardless of author representation is probably more important, especially since, especially since we all know that racist ideology is present around the world. Yeah, and I think it's really it's really disappointing for readers of color who love historical romance and want to see themselves and their ancestors in those stories. Right. So I, I've had an arc of this book for a while. I mentioned it last week, as I said, and I was really looking forward to it. Um, I started reading, I got, you know, maybe sort of 5% of the way in, and I wasn't really enjoying the writing or the story that much. Um, so I actually didn't read far enough to make it to make it to most of the quotes and examples that were cited by reviewers as being harmful or problematic. Although I will say that there's one early passage um, that the reviewers cited, several of the reviewers cited, with reference to Princess Sarani's internalized colorism. Um, that that did jump out at me when I was reading it. You know, before I read any of these reviews. And I noted it and I hoped that it was there because the characters' perspectives were going to evolve. And I continued to read or, you know, at least try to read because as a white woman, I have a lot of concerns about, you know, questioning the plot or the characters of an author who shares her character's identity and whose own ancestors may have experienced the same or similar hardships that these characters are experiencing. That's, you know, that, that's out of my lane. Um, so I want to be really careful about that. Based on the reviews that I've read, uh, both the original one that sort of started this controversy and another in-depth review by an own voices reviewer, and I will link to both of those in the show notes. Uh, I have for now put the book down and I will not be finishing it or reviewing it in its current iteration. So I, I don't know, I guess I just wanna, I wanna join those readers out there, particularly readers who have been um, who have been pining for representation of their identities in historical romance. Uh, I, I don't know. We, we have a lot to thank reviewers for in terms of the work that they do. You know, when readers and reviewers do the largely unpaid work of reading and thoughtfully responding to a book, any book written by anyone, they're getting the word out about possibly lesser known authors or new authors, encouraging new readers to try them out. Um, so they can be vital sort of word of mouth um, for, for new authors or, or for authors to, to find new readers. But they're also taking very seriously the possibility that their review could protect readers from unwittingly reading a book that they may end up finding deeply distressing or hurtful. 
um, you know, and in the aftermath of this conversation, what I'm seeing is that a number of reviewers seem to be considering quitting the review game altogether because they feel like authors don't have their backs, which would be an enormous shame and a really great loss to the romance community. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that sort of it's that sort of notion about how you should try to avoid punching down. Um, you know, these reviewers are mostly unpaid. They're doing this work because they love it. It's these voices that often help sell authors' books. So for some of those same authors to yell at them on Twitter, um, I think it's pretty demoralizing to them. And multiple reviewers are speaking without naming names for the most part about authors whose books they just won't purchase or review in the future due to their part in this. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, this is something that's going to have, you know, this is going to echo down through, uh, through Romancelandia for, for quite some time. Um, But it kind of made me think about, about reviewing in general. I mean, do you have, do you have a review policy? Um, You know, where do you, where do you review or where do you talk about books? And if you didn't like something, do you, do you make a negative review public or do you kind of take the, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all approach? Um, that's kind of a good question. I don't actually write reviews publicly or otherwise. Um, I will recommend a title if I love it or have or feel a deep connection to it. And this is something I've been thinking a lot about recently because I actually have a hard time describing a plot, uh, let alone <laughs> the exact point where a story may have lost me. And particularly around something I have strong aversion to, um, often I just assume it's a personal preference, but I do have a hard time putting my finger on exactly why something doesn't feel right. This actually strikes me as like maybe a type of apathy that I'm trying to address in my daily life, like to be able to identify why something doesn't feel right instead of just dismissing it as just something I don't like or, and leaving it at that. I'd like to get a little more curious about that. But going back, it's, it isn't about like not having anything nice to say um, or not wanting to and not say something nice. It's more about not fully comprehending why I don't like something. On the other side of that, uh, if I just don't find a book compelling or it doesn't grab me, I'm not afraid to put it down and move on. I used to feel bad about that, but when I was a bookseller, I realized there's just too many titles out there and it's okay not to finish a book. But basically what I'm saying is I don't often review things, good or bad. If I love something, I will absolutely recommend it. Uh, Maybe not always publicly. And I don't always know why I don't like something and will likely not finish it if I just cannot stand it, which means I won't speak of it again. Um, so yeah, come to think of it, this is all rather awkward given my desire to have a bookstagram and I really appreciate trigger warnings, the, the, those sort of like, you know, caution, uh, headlines before each reviewers. But, um, yeah, I, I need to figure out what would be a right element for this. Uh, how about, I'm rambling, uh, Shanjit, how... What are your policies for reviewing canon? Because I know that you actually are more active in this than me. Uh, I am to an extent. Um, you know, I'm sort of, it, it's interesting that you say that about Bookstagram because I'm sort of struggling with that as well. With Instagram, I'm tagging the author in my review. So I am much more likely there not to review something at all if I didn't like it. And in fact, I'm really actually trying to only highlight things that I was just crazy about for whatever reason. So, um, you know, if you go to my, my bookstagram account, uh, it does not have a ton of posts. Um, but I'm, I'm really just trying to kind of focus on stuff that I was just crazy about for whatever reason. Um, you know, I also review on Goodreads. But, you know, and I know that authors read Goodreads reviews because I have heard a lot of horror stories about authors and their fans trolling reviewers on Goodreads. Um, But somehow with Goodreads, it's easier to pretend that an author might not see a negative review, which is totally me having my head in the sand. I absolutely admit that. Um, Usually because I I read so many books and I'm too lazy to review them all, uh, much to the chagrin of some, uh, who would like me to review everything <laughs> that I am talking about, Evie here? Uh, 
usually my Goodreads review policy is that I will review something if it, again, completely blew me away or if I really loathed it. Like if I'm, if I'm giving something one star, I almost feel compelled to explain why. Um, but I also think you bring up a really interesting point about not always knowing why you don't like something. And, and so I also am concerned uh, when I write those negative reviews, I, I, I'm also a little bit concerned about something that I just may have totally missed. Um, so, you know, that's kind of a, it's something to think about for sure. Um, but, you know, so anytime I'm reviewing something publicly, whether it's on Bookstagram or Goodreads or even on this podcast, I try to stop and ask myself first, would I be comfortable with the author, the author of this book reading or hearing this criticism? You know, I, I think we all know and, you know, no one more so than authors, nobody is obliged to enjoy any particular book. And that is what you sign up for when you publish a book and put it out there for people to read. But authors are also people with feelings and it is possible for us to hurt those feelings. <laughs> and so it seems to me getting back to what happened on Twitter over the weekend, that that conversation about that one review of that one book really took a turn because of the very real pain experienced by BIPOC authors who have had their books dismissed or nitpicked to death or whatever by white, white reviewers. So, you know, was it the time or the place for that conversation? It's, it's looking like probably not, um, as Adriana Herrera said on her Twitter. But I don't, I also don't want to discount those feelings that led to those authors speaking out. Like they've been through something very painful. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to discount that. Um, I thought Olivia Dade, who uh, writes some lovely romances, including uh, 40 Love, which you read recently, and Desire in the Deep Blue Sea, which I read recently. Very nice, very nice um, rom-coms. Anyway, I think she said it really well on Twitter. And this is a quote. She said, I have to believe that you can simultaneously acknowledge widespread racism in reviews of books by BIPOC authors and say this particular book is problematic for these specific reasons. And then she goes on to say, again, this, this is a quote, being part of a marginalized group does not excuse you from doing the work of good representation. I know this because I've effed up fat rep before in a harmful way despite being fat myself and got rightfully called out on it, end quote. She then goes on to identify the book that that occurred in, which is called Hidden Hearts. And she actually asks her readers not to buy it. She says, I'm getting the rights back and maybe I'll revise it someday, but, but please don't buy it in its current, um, its current iteration because uh, she, doesn't, uh, she doesn't feel that it, it represented that community very well. So I thought that was, I thought that was really interesting. interesting. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, this is, this is le leading me toward all sorts of tangents. It's a very, <laughs> very rambling conversation, but it also made me think about how, like, this is the reason I don't use Twitter personally. I am a hot tempered person. I can just see myself seeing red popping off on Twitter in a moment of white hot rage, and then deeply regretting not taking five minutes to collect my thoughts. And yeah, you can go back and delete your tweets, but if you are in the middle of a huge conversation like this and you're one of the major players, not an issue I am ever likely to experience, but, you know, <laughs> um, but, you know, if you are one of the major players in a conversation, you know, somebody screenshotted that that's not gone forever. All the deleted tweets and apologies in the world can't erase what you said in a moment of rage or hurt or any number of feelings. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't want to knock Twitter too hard because it, it very much has its uses, but it is mm -hmm. also not a place that's known for its chill. <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel it. Maybe I'm being kind of unfair. I feel like I've been biased against Twitter for a really long time. So I don't know. What do you think? Um, about Twitter or social media in general? I mean, Twitter moves very fast. I could never keep up with it. Yeah. Um, and, it and, and honestly, it's just too easy to pop off in social media to begin with. Uh, it's easy to miss the point of a debate or argument. And again, in Twitter, it just moves so quickly that you quickly, it devolves into all these little micro issues. Uh, and so it's hard to kind of find your way back to this, to the heart of, of what's going on. Um, one of my biggest issues 
with my graduate school education, which was entirely online, was the discussion boards. I know, stick with me. I promise to bring it back. Um, so online discussion boards can, uh, especially in distance learning, learning situations uh, should be places to discuss and discover and to engage. But it's really, it can be really difficult, especially when it's A, one-sided, B, it's easy to misread or unintentionally add meaning or tone where there may not be any in the first place. And C, you can misunderstand the issue at hand. I actually remember one instructor would play devil's advocate in these, in these discussions, but would never follow up with why she said that or how it fit into the week's lesson. So I never felt like I learned anything or understood how to synthesize all this information that we were getting. At their best, social media, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Instas, uh, function in kind of a similar way. It's there to deepen these, these uh, learning discovery avenues, deepen connections. But often I feel like social media and Twitter especially, where the threads are quick, cumbersome, um, for me, since I'm not proficient at it, they, they, they can quickly spiral because everyone is adding their opinions or feedback or playing devil's advocate at a rapid pace. There's so much noise. So I tend to sit back and wait until I understand the situation, but it just, you know, it moves very quickly. And it usually means that I might lose an opportunity to share, you know, of course, all my words are brilliant, um, to share <laughs> my, my, to share anything really. Um, in truth, my lack of engagement from certain conversations actually bothers me a lot, but mostly I'm just trying to parse like the important bits, you know, the nougat of the argument. And sometimes it's just moving too fast that all I can do is just sit back and sort of like take it all in. Luckily for me, I get to experience some of that brilliance that you don't have a chance to share with the world because Twitter moves too quickly. So lucky me. Um, but, <laughs> but I know what you mean. I mean, my head is spinning. My head's been spinning for two days because I've spent all this time trying to figure out what happened over the weekend because I wasn't in it. I heard about it later. And now I'm just trying to reconstruct it all from uh, you know, from, from tweets and retweets and deleted tweets and screenshotted deleted tweets. And I don't know. I, I also wonder, and I, I I'm sorry, I just keep wondering about things, like, <laughs> you know, how, wonder. how are, how are disagreements like this affected by the very real ways in which the pandemic is messing with our heads? You know, last night, Claire and I were reading uh, this lovely picture book, um, which my Aunt Meg sent to Claire. Thank you, Aunt Meg. Um, it's called The Seed of Compassion, and it is by and about the Dalai Lama. And one of the lines reminded me of my favorite line from my favorite parenting book. This seems like a tangent, but, you know, stay with me. So uh, that book is How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. And that line is, kids can't act right if they don't feel right. And it's like, it's the only thing I've ever read in a parenting book that I can always remember. Like, I can always come back to that, you know, I read parenting books and a lot of them are very smart and have interesting things to say and they have completely gone out of my head. But this one, this one really sticks with me. You know, if your kid is having tantrums, calling you names, chucking stuff at you, whatever, you know, think about what's going on. Is she hungry? Is she tired? Is she getting enough attention? Is she worried or nervous about something? Like there's a big dog across the street or, you know, is my loose tooth going to bleed when it comes out? Or has it been six months since, she, since she's played with another child? You know, Faber and Maslish had no idea this pandemic was on the horizon, but I imagine they would be with me on this. You know, I don't know if anybody in the world feels right right now. And you and I have been talking a lot about kindness and patience in these dark times and sometimes feeling on the bad days, like we're just losing faith in the essential goodness of humanity. Yeah, I, I can't think of a single person who isn't going through something or who feels quite right at, at this time. Like, how do we hold each other in times that require distance and separation? Uh, I, shared I shared with you privately that I recently was cough shamed while in my own home. And this seems like a good, good enough time to bring it up. 
Uh, so uh, for listeners, I've been dealing with some health stuff this past year that I've been working with my doctor to figure out. One of my symptoms has been this relentless cough with what feels like asthma or I, I heard the term reactive airways that seem to fit. It's not COVID, but we're still trying to figure out what what the cause is. The bottom line is that it hurts and it's disruptive and can often be triggered by food. Um, so one afternoon I had a piece of chocolate and it triggered this reaction. So for about an hour, I was coughing, experiencing asthma, basically having a hard time breathing. There was lots of mucus too, but that's gross and I won't expand on that. Um, after about 45 minutes, I heard a voice from the apartment building kind of across our driveway, which is like 20 feet from my living room window. My neighbor shouted at me, what do you have in there, COVID? And I just remember feeling shot and hurt and properly shamed, honestly. And um, I I wish it had shocked the, um, the uh, reaction out of me, but it didn't. Um, <clears throat> But uh, I, I ended up going into our bedroom and, and just, uh, you know, continued in there. But I remember wondering at, at some point, had she ever thought like, dude, is that person okay? Or did she just go straight to fear and irritation? I mean, I, I get it. It's been such a tumultuous year. My, my goodness, like there's so much fear and anxiety and not too many ways to get away from any of this. Like I've been struggling with this myself, you know, self-care, cultivating hope and excitement through all the anxiety and depression, but with tensions escalating and fears rising. And honestly, like sometimes I think there's no end in sight. Like how do we maintain our basic humanity and keep our faith and hope? So yeah, it's super easy to fire off and there's a lot to be angry and sad about and a lot to be afraid of, you know? So how do we hold our hearts and hold each other in love and support and patience and, and with, with hope. Like I've been sitting with that a lot because I feel as you were kind of talking about, like just a lot of heaviness and, and social media does not help whatsoever. No, it, it really doesn't. <laughs> wow. That's so true. And that is such, that is such an upsetting incident. When you texted me about it, I was just so, oh, I was just so mad. I had one of those like white hot rage moments for you. I am so sorry that happened to you. And also it seems deeply unfair that it was chocolate that set off. The <laughs> chocolate is yeah. supposed to be a comforting food and that's just right? very unfair. So, but in all seriousness, you know, as the Dalai Lama said in this very delightful picture book, when someone, this is a quote, when someone is scowling or upset or hurt, you could busy yourself with your own concerns, or you could ask, what might I do to help them? So, you know, let's, I don't know if she deserves it, but let's give the cough shamer the benefit of the doubt and imagine she was speaking out of fear. Um, but, you know, how difficult would it have been to say instead, hey, are you doing okay over there? And if that had been the message that you received, how more likely would you have been to say it when you could speak again, you know, oh, thanks for asking. I'm feeling better now. Or, oh, thanks for asking. I'm actually having an asthma attack, but I'll be all right. Not that that's any of their dang beeswax, but you know, you get what I mean. You know, everybody wins in that situation. You don't have to experience someone shaming you for having a medical issue that you can do nothing about. And you feel good that your neighbor cares about you. She gets to feel good about caring about you and bonus. Maybe she can feel a little bit less scared about the virus. Not that she's entitled to any information or response from you at all, naturally, but there, there, there was a way, uh, you know, that she could have expressed herself with more compassion. Absolutely. And, and I, I feel like all of us, you know, could, I mean, in that particular moment, I couldn't talk, which was good. Um, so I didn't really think it was wise to say anything at all, but, but also because like, I was, I was certainly triggered by my own shame and anger that I felt. Uh, I, I do very much believe that our react, our reactions to, to situations and events and other people, particularly other people are often rooted in our own emotions and worldview. Um, like, 
what if we flip it and put out love and light instead of a triggered reaction? And and I guess I'm in, in these are situations in which, you know, like road rage or, you know, there, there's a lot of things happening right now where I think that it's okay to feel angry. Um, and then there's like these, these trigger reactions where, you know, you just want to go off the handle on someone just because you feel like going off. Um, but I mean, I don't know where my neighbor was coming from. I don't actually know who she is. Uh, I imagine it was fear, but maybe it was concerned, you know, albeit concern expressed in a very gruff manner. Who knows? And while I can't actually, I couldn't actually speak in that moment, I also believe that sometimes waiting is, is you know, waiting to say anything is kind of my best policy, especially when I feel hurt and anger. I often think about, sorry, this is total tangent. I think about the, um, the meditation on loving kindness or the meta prayer. Um, I found it on um, Jack Cornfield's website and it goes, uh, may I be filled with loving kindness. May I be safe from inner and outer dangers. May I be well in body and mind. May I be at ease and happy. So you start with may I, and then you move to may you be filled with loving kindness. And then the, like the third stanza is may all beings be filled with loving kindness. I think of this, like not only is it just peaceful and centering, but that there's this energetic transfer that is just really gentle and very positive. And I think, I just think of like a ripple of water radiating out. It's just, I don't know. I think mostly I imagine we are all sort of absorbing so much tension or feeling a lot of anxiety right now, as opposed to actually being, um, having outlets for, for calmness. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, and I fully aware how woo woo I sound right now, but I stand by it. <laughs> and, uh, I, I don't know for as, as often as I think of, of, of this and I'm reminded of it, I don't practice the meta prayer very often. And perhaps that's something I should endeavor to make time for because I think we could all kind of use that energy right now. I'm kind of digging that, kind of digging that meta prayer. Um, so now, did you perhaps watch some crash landing on you after this distressing incident to cheer up? Uh, because I think romance novels and rom-coms could be part of the answer uh, to that question of, you know, like, how do we hold on to our basic humanity? <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I mean, yeah, I kind of sulked for a bit, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, I think that's well worth a sulk, sulk away. One of the most justified sulks I can think of right now. <laughs> but, uh, <coughs> yes, uh, when, when Jay came home, uh, we watched a couple of episodes of Crash Landing because nothing else makes me feel better than Riri. Like, I, but, you know, I did have to work through those feelings first. And it's true, like, romance and rom-coms and rom-joms, they're, they're all about love and that emotional journey to wholeness. And by that, I don't mean that you complete me BS. Like, I'm not a fan of Jerry Maguire. Thank you very much. I mean, like, wholeness in oneself and the ability to hold your heart and take care of the heart of others. Like, these connections are what help foster that hope and patience and openness. They give us permission to experience our feelings and help navigate those awkward and intimidating emotions like shame and anger. And I feel like I've, like, said this so many times. On the, Like, I need to find, like, a different, like, I, I need to stop saying this so often but it, it just it really strikes me like you know that you know rom-coms and romance and crash landing on you will always be my answer for when I need to find goodness and and you know humanity and and on that note let's talk about some goodness and humanity aka what are we reading now um you well I was gonna say you go first but have you read anything this week or have you been busy with your first rewatch, the first of many rewatches of Crash Landing on You? I would say, you know, hashtag sorry, not sorry, but I don't even want to joke about being sorry about watching Crash Landing on You. No. And, and we did. We totally watched it again. All 16 glorious episodes. Uh, we watched it a second time. I can't 
quite justify watching it back to back a third time just yet. Uh, it has been such a long time since I've had this huge of a crush on on a, a TV show, on a TV character. Like I just just love it so much. Uh, but I did do some um, searching and I found a book list on Book Riot that was honestly met just for me. Like it's a list, it, it's called romance novels like Crash Landing on You. It is a list for novels, you know, after burning through Chloe. So I'm I'm going to start on, on this list. Wow. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm like hashtag so excited. <laughs> you know, so you sent me the the link to this list and we'll put that in the show notes, of course. Um, you know what I didn't see on this list was the Heirs of Han's Hole series by J.C. Lee. Um, and the first one of those is Temporary Wife Temptation, which is a title that I just love. Um, and it deals with a successful family business and, you know, questions of, uh, you know, the sort of multi-generational businesses and... Uh, you know, and legacies and things like that. So I thought of this book and, and indeed this, this series of books immediately when I realized that that sort of multi-generational, wildly successful family business is also a big part of, of Seri, the heroine's um, story and background in Crash Landing on You. Yes. And I was so happy that you, um, you caught that and sent that to me. And I, I, Cloud Library has it, so I borrowed it. Yay. Um, yeah so and I just started it last yeah. night uh and you know it's it's fun because aside from book club we aren't often reading the same things at the same time so it's pretty fun to both be reading totally true yeah we don't so yes um we should yeah 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 we should do that more this one this one is fun because it, it has a really it has a really bonkers marriage of convenience fake relationship plot. So Garrett Song is the heir apparent of Han Sol, which is a wildly successful fashion empire that, you know, is built from the ground up by his grandparents working 16 hours a day. And so, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of like legacy and pressure writing on this. Um, and the heroine, Natalie Sobol, is the interim VP of HR. And there were a lot of letters in that sentence but so so Garrett needs to fend off an arranged marriage from his grandmother um who wants to marry him off to another um you know another wealthy business family um and she's threatening to hire someone else as CEO if he doesn't fall in line so he needs to do something about that Natalie on the other hand she really needs a shot at a job in New York and a husband wouldn't hurt either because she's trying to adopt her orphan niece and she wants to um, you know, the adoption is being contested and she wants to just, you know, present herself as, as a very stable person, um, you know, at a two parent home and a um, loving family and, you know, plenty of, of security and safety for the child. So anyway, so for these reasons, a temporary marriage, of course, seems like the perfect solution to these people because they live in a romance novel. But, you know, can they really make it happen without involving their hearts? Um, it's a it's a Harlequin category romance, so it's that nice short length, you know, like a little over 200 pages, moves along very briskly, and I fully expect a big meaningful gesture at 92%. <laughs> well, I did I, I did actually finish it this morning. Um, so um, I, I and I don't remember the percentage, but yeah. <laughs> Uh, what's so interesting to me uh, uh, when reading uh, this book, as well as watching Crash Landing, uh, is some of the class and wealth divisions. There is a scene in um, Temporary Wife Temptation uh, in which Garrett's grandmother is telling him about the arranged marriage. And she says the woman's family is uh, Jebul. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, which is, I guess, a super powerful and influential family, uh, like level of wealth and 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 class in Korean culture, like and and like Garrett's family is super powerful and wealthy and influential, but there's another level that's even more so. Like I was just like so in like impressed by these like these little details. I mean, watching uh, Crash Landing. I had to look up what uh, chabul meant because 
Sehi comes from a Chabul family, which in South Korea is a large conglomerate that's run by an owner or a family. And this is the type of family that Sehi comes from, which is rather beyond my comprehension altogether. It's these like little details I just find so interesting in kind of explaining who these characters are. What else intrigues you from that book riot list? Is there anything you're going to seek out right away? Oh my gosh. Uh, I mean, two of my favorites are on the list. The Bride Test by Helen Hong and The Right Swipe by Alicia Rye. Um, so that's a good start. Oh, and Talia Hibbert and Adriana Herrera are also on the list. More favorites. But I saw uh, Sexy Dangerous, Sexy Slash Dangerous by Beverly Jenkins. And I'm intrigued. And I just borrowed that. Um on uh, library to go. Um, basically, I'm drawn to the bodyguard trope, like hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> like crash landing, Captain Ree is the protector and the the bodyguard figure, like very much the alpha. Which I'd really like to clear something up. I originally said that I didn't think Ree was alpha at the beginning, but I am wrong. He totally is, and he's giving me a new appreciation for the alpha hero. And it's very hard not to insert his face on, on these on these heroes that I'm reading. Um, so back to the list. Um, yeah, so along with uh, Sexy Dangerous, uh, Nana Malone's uh, Bodyguard to the Billionaire, and Lies by Kylie Scott also caught my eye. But I started with Temporary Wife's Temptation, which, like I said, I finished this morning. It was good. I'm very sexy. Oh, I'd better catch up. And I always forget that Beverly Jenkins has also written romantic suspense. And she's just, she's such a Renaissance woman. I mean, historical romance and contemporary small town romance and suspenseful romance with bodyguards. And I just I actually just started the first book in her Blessings series, which is um, about the, the lives and loves of people in a small town in Kansas. Um, I just learned that there's a Blessings TV series in the works. And so I wanted to see what that was all about. And that's very charming so far. I'm just a few pages in, but I'm really digging it. Um, KJ Charles uh, described it on Goodreads. Um, the whole series is just sort of being a wonderful soap opera. And she definitely means that as a compliment. It sounds like she just binged them all in a matter of days. Um, so if KJ Charles likes it, I'm probably, I'm probably going to be into it. And speaking of KJ Charles... I just started The Sugar Game, which is the second book in the Will Darling Adventures. And I really do not know what the title refers to. So I'm very curious about that. Um, Joanne, our, our friend, uh, just texted me to say that she finished it last night. And she says that it has one of her favorite chapters that she's ever read. So that just shot straight to the top of the finish this soon list. Um, and then one more, uh, one more series to recommend. I have to say that I really, really enjoyed um, the Surrey SFS series of novellas by Nicola Davidson. SFS, if you're wondering, and I know you are, uh, stands for it stands for Sexual Freedom Society. So it's all about this group of friends in Regency England who just love to get together once a month and have tea and talk about scandalous things. Uh, it's, very, it's very charming. You know, each one of them finds love and all the books are pretty delightful. My favorite has definitely been one called My Lord, Lady and Gentleman. And you may guess from the title that is a uh, that is a uh, male, male, female menage where everybody is in love with everybody else. And I finally just realized that I totally have a thing for, for that subgenre. And I feel like I could talk about it at length in another podcast. I think that'd be a really interesting topic and one that we should, we will, we should and will consider doing. I know other people would like to hear more about poly relationships, poly relationships in romance. Well, and it's, it's interesting because Evie asked me a few days ago, um, one of our many conversations that we had about romance while we were at the cabin, um, if there were certain things certain ways in which romance, reading romance had opened my mind. And I would say that that subgenre, um, the sort of, you know, polyamorous relationships subgenre has had definitely is something that sort of opened my mind a bit um, reading those romances. So anyway, 
we will talk about that at length another time. But for now, the time has come for us to sign off. And as always, we would love to hear from you. Do you have thoughts to share on anything we talked about today? Do you want us to talk about your favorite trope or subgenre or author? Do you just want to say hi? You can find us at LOPL.org and send us an email. You can respond to a bookish affair related post on the library social media, or you can find me on Instagram at Shandy B Reads. Shandy like the refreshing drink, be like the bug reads. And now you can find me on Instagram too at the Knitterly Bookworm. The opinions espoused there do not necessarily reflect those of the Lake Oswego Library or of this podcast. And please help spread kindness, not germs, through words and actions, and wear a mask. Thank you so much for joining us and listening. Hi, everyone. Thanks for your patience with the audio. We're trying some new... We're trying something new next week. We couldn't do this podcast without the help of a few awesome folks. Thank you to Allison Arnold and Anya Woodhouse for being our rocks and our champions. Rick Lyons for giving us this crazy idea in the first place and making us believe we could do it. Chris Barrett for being a national treasure. Chris Myers for Good Trouble. Noah Elson, Amy Grimes, and Todd Macklem for answering all of our emails and making us look good on social media. Everyone at LOPL has provided so much encouragement and support. Claire D. does our credits and corrections. That's me. Thanks to Justin and Joe, our very own romance heroes. You're the very antithesis of mad, bad, and dangerous to know. And thanks most of all to our book club members and podcast listeners who keep us inspired and, and, and always searching for the next happily ever after. See you next time.